I want to uh, introduce you to a man by the name of Frank Reed. Now, you may or may not have heard the name Frank Reed before. I hadn't, but I learned something about Frank Reed. Um, he was imprisoned in Lebanon uh, from 1986 to 1990. And during that time, he lived practically in total darkness. Now, that wasn't because they had the lights turned out, and that wasn't because he was blind. It's because during that time, he was blindfolded during his entire stay in this cell in Lebanon. At one point, he was transferred out of his cell by himself, and he's put into a cell with uh, two other men. But even in that cell, even knowing that they were there, uh, it took three weeks before he was willing to lift that blindfold up just to peek to see those other men that were there in that cell with him. And during that time, he was treated horribly. He was chained to a wall. Uh, he was beaten. He got sick at one point, constantly tormented by his captors. However, during that whole time, it wasn't the torment or the torture or the illness or being chained to a wall that was hardest for him to cope with. He was interviewed by Time Magazine not long ago, and this is what he said about what bothered him the most during his captivity. He said, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you are truly alone. You know, one of the most shuddering, disturbing things that I deal with is the thought that people step into this auditorium on any given Sunday and they feel exactly like this. They feel that no one cares. A worse thought is that someone would leave here on a Sunday morning thinking that no one cares about them. You know, I think about the people that are living here in Sheridan in assisted living who very rarely have visitors that are wondering, is anybody caring about me or concerned about me? I think about those who have checked into the VOA, uh, desperately needing help with addiction, wondering, does anybody care about me? And then I think about the young people. Young people and teens who are haunted by this idea of whether or not anybody really cares about them. You see, when people are in that place, if they live in that place for a long time, that's going to lead to depression. And ultimately, that can even lead to suicidal thoughts. I want First Baptist Church to be known as a church that cares about each and every person that is here, that comes here, that seeks to find community and fellowship here in our body. So what we're going to talk about this morning is how can we be a caring church? How can we be a caring church? This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, we're going to look at verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning is our last week in this series we've been doing called Vital Signs. And we've been talking about those things that are of vital importance to the health of the church. And I want to say it in a little bit different way this morning because it's true that the, the church has vital signs, much like the human body has vital signs. We've got blood pressure and a pulse rate. But imagine for a moment that you were going to a place that had never had a church before. And this people started asking, okay, uh, we want to start doing church. Well, what would you tell them? What is it that has to be present? What functions do you have to have in order to have a church? And I would argue that these are the five. These are, this is what we get from Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47. These are the five that we've been going over. And there in that early church, Peter preached this amazing evan evangelistic message. 3,000 people came to saving faith in Christ. And what you see breaking out there, first of all, is worship. And we talked about the need to be true worshipers of God, worshiping in, in psalms and hymns and reconciling the relationships with those that are around us. We talked about the need for instruction, being a lifelong learner, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We talked about fellowship, and even though it's messy, even though it's hard to do, God himself is our model for fellowship. He exists and has existed eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been in fellowship with himself, and he's our model of our need for fellowship. Last week, we talked about evangelism and the importance of being bold. It's a scary thing sharing your faith with somebody. You don't know how they're going to respond so there's a need for boldness. It's okay to be scared, but we're bold because we trust that we have the truth in the gospel and we trust the truth giver, God himself, that has given us that message. And this morning we're going to go on, we're going to talk about this subject of service, specifically care. How can we be caring for each other? And there in Acts chapter 2 and verses 44 and 45, we see care happening among these early Christians. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the, pro the proceeds to all as any had need. So this morning we're going to look at these four characteristics of Christ's care. We saw care breaking out. They were very in touch with, e with each other's needs in that early church. And now we're going to look at the example of Christ himself and how he went about giving us, um, teaching us, rather, how to care for those that are around us. So we're going to start this morning uh, in that very first verse that I mentioned to you, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And we see there, Jesus is traveling around, and it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, the Gospel of Matthew uh, is unique in that what we see Christ doing is establishing his kingship. He's showing the people through his miracles that he is God. And he's calming storms. He's healing diseases. He's casting out de demons. He's commanding paralytics and cripples to get up and walk. And he's showing people that he has command and control over all these things. 
that this is no problem for him. He's fully God. So we're getting this taste, this little taste of what kingdom living is going to finally be like when our king comes and sets up his kingdom on earth. The future kingdom is going to be free of disease, free of pain. And he's showing the people what that's going to be like. But see, there's something interesting that happens when you look at all of these miraculous uh, deeds that Christ is doing. Because in practically every case, the, what precedes the miracle is the need being made known. In other words, before Christ does a miraculous healing, inevitably, the person has to make the need known to him. Now, that's interesting because Christ could have uh, walked into an area, right? Like he could, for example, if it had been shared in Wyoming. He could have walked into Sheridan, crossed into the city line, raised up his hands and said, Sheridan, be healed. And everybody in Sheridan would have been healed. But see, that's not what he did. People had to come to him. The need had to come to him. We see in uh, Matthew 4.24, we see this being played out. It says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. He's just beginning his ministry. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. But notice what it says. It says they brought him. You see, there was this predecessor of the need being made known. Um, that's important. Now, among the Jews, there was a belief that if someone was sick, there was a good chance that their sin is what got them there. So that person was often ostracized. So what this person had to press through was this ostracized state that they had been in in order to get to Christ. In other words, they got to the point where, like, I don't care anymore about what people think of me. I believe this guy can heal, and therefore I'm going to go to him so I can be healed. So, in order for an important need to be met, it first needed to be communicated. There was a need to communicate the need. Um, whenever I was back in West Virginia, I worked as a care pastor, and it, it was fascinating how many people thought that I was omniscient. They thought I was all-knowing. So this is how that would play out. I would get this angry phone call, and somebody would call me and say, why haven't you checked in on them yet? And I'd be like, um, who was that again? What, what hospital was that? I had no idea that this person was sick and in the hospital. And then one time I got a phone call and said, why haven't you taken a meal to this person? Yeah, like, well, I, I didn't even know they were in need of a meal. And in one case, I made arrangements. I got the angry phone call. So I asked somebody, would you go please and take this person a meal? So somebody made a meal. They took it to that person. And that person was so angry that somebody thought that they couldn't take care of themselves that they wouldn't even accept that meal. By the way, please, please don't do that to us. Make sure the person actually wants a meal or a visit before we go and visit that person and take them a meal. But see, the need has to be communicated. As a matter of fact, if you're ever uh, put in the hospital, let me tell you ahead of time that if we don't know you're there, we can't come and visit. And by the way, Brad Kremenzik is an amazing care pastor. If you've not met Brad, uh, he's phenomenal at what he does. If you have Brad come and visit you while you're in the hospital, you will heal twice as fast than if he had never come. 
one thing we would ask you to do is when you check in, they're going to give you a slip of paper. If you want to be visited, uh, you need to check on that, that form. This, this sounds terrible. You need to check that you're a Baptist. Now, the reason that sounds terrible is you can also have the option of picking if you're a Christian. I don't know why they've separated Baptist and Christian on this form. Feel free to check them both, as a matter of fact. But if, we, if you check Baptist, we will, um, that, that will be communicated to us by the administration of the hospital. But there's this need uh, for the need to be communicated. That's this first characteristic of Christ's care, is the needs were communicated to him. He didn't rely on his omniscience, even though he could have, to perform a miracle. So, moving on, I want to talk about this, this second characteristic of Christ's care. Uh, and we find it in verse 36. And it says there, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, these crowds are coming around Jesus and they had all kinds of problems, any, any number of, of ailments. But notice what it says at the end of the verse. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot about sheep, but I've decided to do research so I can become more accustomed to sheep because we're often compared to sheep. And this is not a high compliment. I can tell you that. One thing about sheep is they eat a lot of grass. And they don't digest it that well. Sometimes they overeat. And when they do this, the shepherd actually has to make them lie down to, to digest the grass. And in addition to this, uh, sheep have a fear of moving water. For the most part, they can't swim. If they get into moving water, their, their coat will soak up the water, and they can just sink, and they can drown. So if they go up to a, any stream or anything, as a matter of fact, these sheep are clearly avoiding the water. Uh, they typically won't drink out of a stream if they can see that the water's moving. Now, in addition to that, um, and this is, actually, this is actually a tough picture to see, because if you look closely, there's all kinds of dead sheep littering the ground uh, where these men are walking. And this is in Turkey, and this happened in 2005. One sheep took off running and jumped off a cliff. And guess what happened? 499 sheep followed that one off the cliff. Now, according to the article I read, there were an additional 1,100 sheep that jumped, but they had something soft to fall on, so those sheep didn't die. But sheep will just follow whatever the sheep in front of them is doing. I don't think I even need to tell you how much that parallels the average person out there. They follow the leader. Also, sheep have virtually no protection against predators. Uh, if a, a herd of sheep is out in a field and a wolf or a coyote comes in, this is all, the sheep will just kind of huddle up in the middle, almost like they're comforting each other. But what that makes is this big fluffy target right there, and the predator is just going to start picking those sheep off, whether it's a wolf or a coyote or, or whatever it is. So they really can't even protect themselves. And then finally, um, if a sheep gets flipped on its back, it can't really even get up. And it's so dependent on gravity to keep its circulation flowing to be able to digest food that a sheep will just die right there on its back. 
So the shepherd has to keep an eye on things and flip the sheep back over just in case they fall over on their backs. What did Jesus say the crowds were like? They were like sheep without a shepherd. When you think that you've got it all figured out, when you think that God must really think highly of you because of what you know, just keep this picture in mind. That he sees us and he sees these poor unbelievers around him as sheep without a shepherd. And then what does he feel towards them? It says he feels compassion. He feels compassion for this group of people that he sees. Um, this word compassion, uh, it comes from a Greek word, splankidzomai uh, is what it is, and it, it refers to the entrails of, a, of an animal that's been sacrificed, the parts that have been taken out, the heart and the, and the, the guts. Uh, and, but it came to be that part where we feel something for someone who is in need. We have compassion for that person. There's a, a writer by the name of Henri Nouwen, and um, he talks about his hard lesson in compassion. And he says this. Um, he said when he was a child, he had this vivid memory. His, his dad bought him a pet goat. And this was in the last year of World War II, and they were living in Holland, and the place where they lived was surrounded by these rivers. So they really had no access to supplies. So... They, they lived there, and, and to comfort him, his dad got him this, this baby goat. Well, this goat became his very best friend. He made a little wooden cart for it that could pull around. The first thing he'd do in the morning was go, and he'd check on this baby goat that he had. Uh, he would play with it by grabbing where its horns were starting to form. Uh, at night, he would tuck the, the goat into its pen. And this was his best friend. This is how he uh, managed. You know, this is how he coped those very difficult years. Then he was horrified one morning to wake up and see that someone had stolen his baby goat. And he describes his grief as being so severe, and he was screaming and crying so much that he said his parents really didn't even know what to do with them. And then in response to that, he said this. He said, years later when the war was over and we had enough food again, my father told me that our gardener had taken Walter, his baby goat, and fed him to his family who had nothing left to eat. My father knew it was the gardener, but he never confronted him, even though he saw my grief. I now realize that both Walter and my father taught me something about compassion. You see, for his father, even though he knew his son would be heartbroken, even though he knew what was going to happen, what he felt for this man who was trying to feed his family was greater. The compassion he felt for this man that couldn't feed his family was greater than the, the sorrow he knew that he would have seeing his son breaking down, losing his best friend. You see, that's felt compassion. This is what God the Father felt when he looked at mankind and he sacrificed his only son. His love and compassion for us outweighed or was more to him than the love that he had for his own son in sacrificing his life. And that's how much he loves us. So, we need to be compassionate. 
You know, even for people that we find incredibly difficult to love, if you would hear part of their story and you knew what they had been through and you knew how they had been treated, I guarantee you, you would have compassion for that person. If there's someone in your life, by the way, I would challenge you to do this, that you really have trouble loving, I would try to find out a little bit about their story. Try to understand them a little bit. Try to understand how did they get to this place and have compassion for them. But then how did Jesus show compassion? I want to move on to this third characteristic we find in the Gospel of John. And I'm looking here at John chapter 1. I'm to look at verses uh, 1 and verse 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen this glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, now what's going on here? Um, this verse, verse 1 has always confused me a little bit. And it's because it's saying that in the beginning was the Word. It just seems kind of odd to me. It comes from this Greek word logos. And it's a reference to Christ, saying that Christ has been in the beginning and he's always been. But then he's called the Word. Now, what did that mean? And why did this drop a bombshell on the audience that would have read this? You see, John's audience was, was Greek. And they understood logos. Literally translated, it means word or spoken word. However, to the Greek, it meant reason for life. It referred to a philosophy. And they didn't agree on what the reason was for living. They referred to it as the logos. So for John to say that God himself become man was the reason for life would have been earthquaking to them. That God become man was the reason for living. And not only did he become man, but he dwelt among us. He came here and became one of us. That's called incarnation. It means to put on flesh. And that was the kind of ministry that Jesus had. It was incarnational. By the way, this is what missionaries seek to do when they enter into a new, uh, a new culture. They want to have an incarnational ministry. They want to come in. They want to, they want to dress like the people dress. They want to speak the language that they're speaking. They want to become one of them. I had a friend back in West Virginia, a guy named Chuck Kinder, and behind his house growing up, he had a pen of ducks. And he would go out there from time to time to try to play with these ducks, but he said every time he went out there, the ducks would just, they just run away from him. So he thought to himself one day, he said, you know what? I wish I could become a duck. Because then the ducks would just treat me like one of the other ducks, and they wouldn't run away. See, Christ came, became one of us. He wasn't the God who was far off and uncaring. He wasn't, God wasn't some kind of a cosmic watchmaker who just created and wound it up and walked away so it could tick down until it was over. No, that's what that word Emmanuel means, God with us. That's Christ. He's the God who's with us. And this is how he cares for us. He's in contact with us. Um, one, of the, one of the worst things that happens in Christianity, and, and I think I understand why it happens, is when someone is suffering, oftentimes that person is avoided. And I believe what happens is people are so afraid that they're going to come around that person, they're going to say something dumb, uh, that they're going to open up their mouth and let the dumb fall out, 
that they're going to make that person feel worse than they already feel. People are afraid they won't know what to say. So unfortunately, what happens is that person uh, is left out. It's almost like in addition to their suffering, now they're ostracized. You see, we put this pressure on ourselves. And I will tell you that there is no magical phrase out there that's going to take someone's pain away. As a matter of fact, I think Christ is one of the best examples. When his friend Lazarus died, what was it that Jesus did? He didn't come in and say immediately, quit crying, I'm going to resurrect this guy, you've got no reason to grieve. He didn't say, oh, you're all Christians, you shouldn't be crying. No. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. He came and he felt what they were feeling. And I love what Rick Warren says. I flashed it on the screen just a minute ago because he was talking about after his son had committed suicide and they were grieving and, and people didn't know what to say. He said he learned something so important about what to do to be around someone who's grieving. And this is what he said. He said, you show up and you shut up. You would be shocked how much just your presence just caring enough about someone to be there with them when they're in that worst place of life is helpful and healing to them. You don't even need to say anything. Being there, being present with that person is so important. It's so important. So this third part is contact. You need to be in contact with someone who's suffering. Eye-to-eye -eye contact, voice-to-voice -voice contact. If it's appropriate, physical contact. You saw Jesus physically reaching out to people who were in need of healing. And often when he healed people, he would reach out to them and touch them. It takes contact in some way or another in order to show care. And finally, I want to look at this last characteristic of Christ. We find it in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. And there it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, Jesus just didn't talk about how much he loved us. No. He sacrificed perfection in heaven to come to earth and be tortured to death for you and I. That's the model we have of care, of what Christ did for us. You know, it's one thing. I'm very good. I, you know, I'll tell my wife I love her all day long. Yeah, honey, I love you so much. Oh, would give my life for you. Uh, just don't make me get up and unload that dishwasher, okay? Would you take the diaper this time? I, you know, I'm kind of in my chair here. I'm sort of comfy. No, that's not how love works. Love gets up out of the recliner and changes the diaper. Love gets in the car if it needs to and drives to the grocery store. Love gives up. That's loving indeed. That's loving in truth. You see, that's the kind of care that Christ has modeled to us. Not only did he tell us that he loves us, but he showed us. He showed us that, he's, that he cares. And it's up to us to provide care to others. Now, you may be thinking, okay, um, I, I, need, I need to be helping in some way. 
As a matter of fact, I've been thrilled the past couple of weeks, the number of people that have come up to me and said, Chad, I want to get involved somehow. Well, I'm going to give you an opportunity because we're starting a new ministry here at First Baptist Church. We're calling it Meal Care. Uh, Melody Thompson is going to be like the air traffic controller for this. And typically, meal care, it's been going on, but it's kind of happened sort of organically, and it's mainly fallen on women's ministry. They've been very good about providing food and meals for different things. However, since I've been here, what I found out is there's some guys around here that are some incredible cooks. So why deprive you of the opportunity to provide a meal for somebody that's in need? Now, if you're interested in doing this, if, you're interested, if you've got any culinary skill whatsoever, if you can pull that box of mac and cheese off the shelf and follow the directions in the back, you're qualified. You can do this, okay? So if you're willing to do that, please contact Melody Thompson. Her phone number's there on the screen. Um, so what I would ask is that uh, you, you get in touch with her and let her know you're willing to make a meal. I would also ask that if you need a meal, you would communicate that need uh, to her so she would know who, who she needs to send meals to. So we're starting that today. I hope you'll think about that. I hope you'll get involved and uh, be a part of that meal care ministry. It'll primarily be for needs within the church. Any, any number of things could apply here. It could be a, a new baby. It could be a hospitalization. It could be someone who's just going through a big transition. Maybe they just, just moved here, for example. But this is a way for you to get involved and to serve and provide care for people here in the body. So please get in touch with Melody uh, if that's something you're willing to do. So, so putting this all together, uh, serve others by compassionately caring for communicated needs. Serve others by compassionately caring for communicated needs. I want to close this morning by telling you about a situation that happened um, at a church I was at back in Texas and uh, it, it was heartbreaking. Uh, I was shocked once by what I heard. I was shocked again by how the church responded. We had a missionary that the church had supported for years uh, that got caught up in an affair. And he, he came to the church, and he told the elders what had happened. And he said, I want to go before the congregation. I want to share them with them this, this sin that I committed. And it happened. They had everybody stay after church one Sunday, and, and that always kind of makes your heart drop when you don't know what this specially called meeting is going to be about but they brought everybody together he came up to the front of the church and he confessed to having this affair and he was completely heartbroken he was totally repentant uh, and I believe was totally forgiven and it was hard to hear and it was hard to watch he was he was extremely emotional it was excruciating for him to admit this but then this was how the church responded see everybody knew that that when he he did that that he was going to lose everything. He was going to lose his job. He was going to lose his income. Probably going to lose his, his marriage. So this is what happened. A team of women at our church flew to Tennessee uh, because they wanted to be with his wife. They wanted her to get set up with a home there, with the furniture she needed, with, with the finances that she needed. And then a group of men rallied around him there in Texas. They got him set up with a job. They got him set up with an apartment. They got him set up with the furniture that he was going to need. You see, that's what care looks like. It's meeting somebody where they are. Now, it would have been easy for people to have just been judgmental. 
Well, he got himself into this mess. Well, you know what? That's not where Jesus left us. When he fed the 5,000, and then when he fed the 4,000, when he supplied the needs of that crowd, I can promise you that in that crowd there were adulterers. There were sinners. There were people that probably committed sins that you may see as high up on the list. But you know what? It didn't stop him. It didn't stop him from meeting with those people, meeting their needs. And he is the example that we need to follow to meet the needs of others. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you compassionately love us. God, that you care for us, that you are not off and unconcerned and distant, but you are with us, that you became one of us to sacrifice your life for us. And God, I ask that we would be a church that cares, a church that meets the needs of those around us, a church that would be generous to those uh, who are without, that we would sacrifice, lovingly sacrifice to those in need. God, I pray that our hearts would not become hard. I pray that no one would step out the doors of First Baptist Church feeling uncared for and alone. God, help us to meet these needs with the wisdom that you've given us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As you're exiting today, you'll see some men with some offering plates. Uh, we have something here called an elder fund. That's the, the fund that we use to help meet needs that come up within the body. I'd encourage you, if you can, to give to that fund today. Uh, you'll see the men in the back with the offering plates. Thank you all so much for being here. You're dismissed.